Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. In this episode, I'm speaking with Alan Hancock, Energy and Climate Advocacy Director for the Coastal Conservation League, which is headquartered in Charleston, South Carolina. Alan joined the Coastal Conservation League in 2015 after working for Conservation Voters of South Carolina as their campaigns director. He has also worked at the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control, enforcing and developing air pollution regulations. Alan is a North Carolina native and a graduate of the University of South Carolina with a BA and an MA in geography. He lives in Columbia with his husband, Adam. Alan and I discuss topics like energy generation in South Carolina, grassroots organizations, and the Coastal Conservation League coming together to fight against offshore drilling on South Carolina's coasts, the ever-important conversations we're having right now about the connections between environmental justice and racial justice, and the opportunity for us to rebuild more resilient electricity and food distribution networks. Enjoy! Okay, welcome. We have Alan Hancock with us today for the Eco Interviews. How are you doing today, Alan? I'm doing well, doing well. How are you, Fiona? We're doing, we're doing good. Um, we're excited to have you. Alan is, um, works for the Coastal Conservation League, mm-hmm. which is based out of Charleston, South Carolina. Is that correct? It is. It is. Uh, we're headquartered in Charleston, uh, but we have uh, offices uh, in Beaufort uh, and Columbia, and I'm, I'm in Columbia. Uh, working from home, though, as uh, many of us are in the last last couple of months. Exactly, the new normal. So, um, Alan, how about you introduce yourself, your your work in this in this uh, area, and also tell us an overview of what Coastal Conservation League does. Yeah, so uh, I, I grew up in North Carolina, uh, in in Greensboro, and uh, came down uh, here to uh, Columbia for, for college at, at USC and, uh, you know, liked it a lot and ended up, ended up staying. So after, uh, after college, I went to work uh, for uh, DHEC, uh, the Department of Health and Environmental Control here, uh, and then uh, did a couple of things there. Uh, first job for a couple of years was uh, enforcing uh, our state's environmental uh, regulations, uh, with respect to, to air quality, the Clean Air Act, and uh, I was in the, the group uh, that kind of handled some of the, the civil enforcement cases uh, with, um, with with the Bureau of Air Quality at, at DHEC. So if a company you know, violated uh, provision in uh, their their air permit, their state air permit, uh, we would kind of take them through uh, the, the enforcement process and did that for a few years and then moved to the group that uh, writes air pollution regulations, which was a lot of fun to kind of see how that, how that process works, you know, from you know, coordinating various parts of the organization, uh, working with uh, various parts uh, of the organization, uh, but also uh, stakeholders uh, who really took an interest in, uh, in regulatory matters. Uh, so that was, that was a lot of fun. And then I, I, I switched to the nonprofit world, I think in 2013, uh, with Conservation Voters of South Carolina, which is uh, an environmental advocacy group based here in Columbia. I uh, worked there for a few years and I've been at Coastal Conservation League, uh, I think since 2015. Um, and it's uh, an environmental organization founded in, in 1989 by uh, Dana Beach uh, down in Charleston. Uh, and he was really uh, concerned about 
some of the uh, you know, the sprawl, the growth, development happening uh, in in the coast, air pollution, water pollution, and started the Coastal Conservation League. Uh, in, in 1989 to kind of stop that process. And we've, we've grown to an organization with uh, 40 or so uh, staffers. Uh, we also have uh, our, uh, our project, uh, Grow Food Carolina, uh, which folks in Charleston uh, might be more familiar with. It's, uh, it's a, a food hub, and that's a neat way to uh, provide local food uh, to the community uh, in Charleston and, and also in all, all across South Carolina. Uh, so that's kind of a bit about uh, a coastal conservation league, and my role within that is really to, uh, within our government relations and energy and climate teams, kind of uh, advance our agenda at uh, the state house, uh, help at the public service commission, uh, and uh, do that um, with uh, our technical experts, uh, our lobbyists, uh, and our communications team. So, got a. Uh, a fun job. It allows me to do a little bit of everything. Yeah, it sounds incredibly interesting. And um, and the Coastal Car- Ca- ooh, excuse me, Coastal Conservation League uh, says on your website that you work to protect natural landscapes, abundant wildlife, clean water, and the quality of life here in South Carolina. And that's certainly very important on the coast, which we have spoken about in other podcasts, is seeing some of the worst effects or the most uh, recent effects of climate change with rising sea levels and our coast gets battered with hurricanes that are increasingly uh, more destructive and powerful due to climate change. So um, there's no there's no wonder, it's not surprising that the coast of South Carolina has such a strong uh, environmental organization working on its behalf. But um, you've mentioned that your focus and interest within the Coastal Conservation League is to do with energy, energy production. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, I mean, for me, doesn't make hasn't made me super excited in the past because you just turn on the lights, right? And beyond that, it's kind of a little bit difficult for me to understand. But the more I speak to people, uh, I'm learning that all over the world, there's completely different ways of managing the energy distribution down to, or the energy generation down to the distribution level, which is like you and me turning on the lights. And South Carolina is in a, I don't know if it's unique across the world, but it seems to be a little bit unique that we have what we call a regulated monopoly. So can you tell us about this energy generation, transmission and distribution system within South Carolina? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it, energy, uh, electricity, uh, really, uh, in the United States uh, is, is primarily governed at the, at the state level. Uh, and state uh, public service commissions, and sometimes they're called you know, utility public utility commissions. Uh, but those those state bodies give the uh, utilities uh, a, a kind of a natural uh, monopoly uh, to provide electricity to people within a defined service territory. So, and in exchange for that, utilities uh, are subject to regulation of things like uh, rates. In the decision to build power plants, uh, and the Public Service Commission uh, evaluates plans from utilities to build uh, power plants or, or distribution, kind of weighing a, a few factors, things like you know cost, uh, things like uh, environmental impact, uh, things like reliability, uh, so that we're, we're guaranteed. And when we turn the lights, the light switch, the, the lights, the lights come on. Uh, and and in, in South Carolina, just to kind of give a, a bigger picture on what our energy mix looks like. Uh, we have um, 
uh, about uh, three-fifths uh, nuclear, three-fifths of the electricity generated in South Carolina is actually from nuclear uh, energy from plants up in the upstate uh, and uh, and near Columbia in, in Jenkinsville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and about the remaining uh, electricity, one-fifth is uh, from uh, natural gas uh, and one-fifth is uh, from, from burning coal. Uh, and there's a, I know that adds up to, uh, to hundred percent, but let's assume it adds up to 95% and kind of the remaining, uh, around the edges is from, uh, renewable sources, from hydroelectric power, uh, from solar, a little bit of biomass, uh, a little bit of landfill gas, uh, from, from landfills in South Carolina. And, and that's changed, uh, over the, the last decade or, or two, the, use of coal has dropped uh, as uh, the price of natural gas uh, has fallen uh, and as the cost to operate coal plants uh, has has gone up. So uh, nuclear stayed pretty steady, but coal's dropped, gas has gone up, uh, and, and solar uh, has, has grown uh, significantly, especially in the last few years in South Carolina. Mm, interesting. I didn't know we were so reliant on nuclear. That's um, certainly... Uh, an interesting part. Uh, some of the things I've been learning in regards to nuclear is that it's still very expensive to produce uh, electricity via nuclear. Now, my question is, I mean, I, I think these plants we have in South Carolina are older, so maybe that has reduced the cost. Am I, does it ever reduce the cost or is nuclear always a very expensive way to produce electricity? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it is expensive. Uh, and it's expensive in a couple of ways. On the front end, it, it's very expensive to build uh, a new a new power plant, but it's also expensive uh, to run uh, the infrastructure kind of around a nuclear plant. All of the uh, protocols and procedures uh, that uh, assure the population uh, and that protect the population around a nuclear plant uh, that we're not going to have a, a meltdown or, or accident uh, uh, or even a, a terrorist attack. Uh, so that, that security kind of adds to the expense. Um, once you, you built the plant uh, and then kind of paid off the, uh, uh, the debt or paid down the, the debt, kind of the uh, paying down the mortgage, uh, if you will, uh, it, you're right. It's not as cheap because you don't really have to pay the fuel costs. You know, coal plants and gas plants have to, uh, to bring in uh, fuel to burn. Uh, it's not, uh, you don't have to bring in as much uranium with, with nuclear plants. <laughs> but I think you're right to draw that distinction between the existing plants mm-hmm. uh, that have already kind of paid paid their mortgages uh, and, and new plants. Uh, mm-hmm. and new plants, like we saw at VC Summer, the two proposed new units uh, up at VC Summer north of Columbia, uh, we're going to have, um, you know, uh, I think a real, we've had a real lesson from, from that, that building a new plant uh, is incredibly expensive. It was billions of dollars over budget, so much so that it, they, they pulled the plug on it in, mm-hmm. uh, in the summer of 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're still seeing that in, in Georgia, just uh, over the line, kind of southeast of Augusta uh, at the Vogel plant uh, there. It's, it's incredibly uh, expensive um, to kind of assemble uh, new new nuclear reactors and and the Vogel plant has gone just billions of dollars uh, over budget I think mm. I can't imagine being billions of dollars over budget on anything that's truly scary um, 
So one thing about South Carolina that I'm also learning is that we have some of the highest energy bills in the nation. And it came out in uh, 2018 that South Carolina residents in 2017 paid an average of basically $1,700 for electricity, which is $400 more than the U.S. average. So why are we paying so much for our electricity in South Carolina? It's a good question. Uh, There's a couple of answers. Uh, First, uh, because of the nuclear debt we were just talking about, uh, our, our power bills, uh, especially um, you know, uh, Dominion, uh, formerly uh, SE&G uh, customers, uh, at the time of that study, were, were really paying a, a good bit of that. Uh, Santee Cooper uh, also uh, had some of the debt. They were a, a minority partner in, in BC Summer. Um, but South Carolinians also uh, have high power bills, uh, in part because of lack of uh, energy and efficiency programs, the lack of the ability uh, to you know, quickly uh, and easily uh, finance um, weatherization uh, programs at homes, making sure that things are, are sealed up tight uh, around your around your home. So it's it's part of um, you know, our climate uh, being sort of hot uh, and humid in the summer and we have some cold winter days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that that adds up to it, and the lack of energy efficiency programs to kind of meet that meet that problem uh, has been has been a, a real a real issue. Uh, and and third, we're we're just starting to see improvements uh, in solar, but over the last few years, I think South Carolina has been slower than other states in kind of meeting uh, the moment with uh, with new solar programs. Mm-hmm. And I mean. It- uh, logically, you'd think that solar would be a slam dunk for South Carolina. I mean, you know, we get three days of rain in a row and it is, it's, you know, what's wrong here? And I, I grew up in Scotland, which is exactly the opposite, right? So um, why has South Carolina been so slow with solar? And um, are some of these roadblocks moving out of the way? Do we have a solar future coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I think we were... Um we were deliberate and cautious uh, in our approach starting in maybe 2012, uh, 20, uh, 2013. Uh, and we, uh, we as a state passed a law in 2014 that kind of opened up, uh, opened the door uh, to, to solar uh, in South Carolina. And it, and it included some caps uh, on rooftop solar. Uh, and we started meeting, uh, running up against those caps in um, 20, uh, 2017, 2018, and that led to uh, the passage in 2019 of the Energy Freedom Act, a law uh, that eliminated uh, the, the caps uh, on rooftop solar and also allowed for uh, a new way of evaluating kind of who uh, pays um or what the, the true value of solar is. It, it, it kicked a lot of those questions to uh, the Public Service Commission uh, to, to evaluate. So I think we're, we're catching up. Uh, we've, we've grown by, by leaps and bounds in the last couple of years, not just uh, in, in rooftop solar, uh, but with large-scale solar, kind of the large solar farms that you'll see on the, uh, on the side of the road. In many cases, those are uh, cheaper. This provides cheaper electricity uh, than a, a new natural gas power plant. So, uh, we I think we kind of had a slow start, but we're we're catching up. We're catching up to our neighbors. <laughs> yeah, I see 
uh, there's a commercial on our local channel right now that's for solar. And unfortunately, it really gives me the vibes of like a sleazy used car salesman. I, <laughs> that oh, it puts no. me off. I wish it was a little bit better. But um, so tell, tell me what these caps were. Like, I don't, what, what were they? What, what was the intention behind them? Why were they in place? Yeah, so it, normally uh, electricity, sort of traditionally electricity flows one way from the mm-hmm. power plant uh, to your home. Uh, or to your business, to a factory. Uh, Rooftop solar uh, changes that direction. Uh, If you've got uh, rooftop uh, solar panels, the electricity is going to go from your home kind of back onto the grid. Uh, And that that concept uh, for some, and I think it was a a realistic uh, concern maybe 10 years ago, if you have a lot of demand uh, kind of going going the other way, can, can the system... Uh, can the system handle it? Uh, so I think that was part of the reason for those caps uh, during the negotiations uh, on, on that bill seven or eight years ago. Um, and that that's part of just the, the cautious approach in, in mm-hmm. South Carolina uh, that, that that I think has led to a smoother kind of on-ramp for, for more solar. And those caps were, were I believe, 3%. Uh, of uh, a company's um, a company's electricity uh, generation, uh, and those caps um, were, I think, projected to be met uh, like 20, 2020, 2021. So this year, we started hitting hitting them in some service areas uh, in or getting close to them at least uh, in uh, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen. That that time frame. Um, so we the, the business really moved moved faster than expected. And that, it, I think, goes back to what we discussed with the high power bills. You know, if you're uh, in a, an area of really high power bills, uh, you're going to get, uh, you're gonna get a, a real benefit from, from rooftop solar. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so that, 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 the, the, the bill last year eliminated, uh, eliminated those caps uh, and, and kicked the kind of the, the value uh, that you're going to, you're going to have for that rooftop solar uh, to the public service commission. Okay. So uh, one of our interviewees we had was Dr. Colin Nolden from Bristol, England, and he does energy policy and he was explaining this, um, uh, the generation transmission distribution network. And in the UK, they had real problems going the other direction due to their electricity infrastructure. So 10 years, they were all gung-ho for rooftop solar as a green energy source. But now they're actually dissuading people from using it because they can't handle the the residential production going back into the network. It's just mm. the infrastructure isn't working. Uh, the caps were put in place to be cautious about that here, and now they're being taken away. So do we not experience the same issues with the power coming from residents, maybe going to the transmission network? I think that the transition period over the last uh, five to 10 years has given uh, the utilities uh, the, and the electric cooperatives uh, of South Carolina the, uh, the time uh, to, to make those, those technical adjustments. Uh, and it, keep in mind, there's also benefits with, with that model, not just to consumer, uh, but also to the, to the whole grid. You're, you're sort of uh, distributing uh, electricity generation uh, across a variety of sources. So if one uh, you know, goes goes out, or if you've got um, you know a failure in the the transmission grid, other parts of the grid can kind of pick up the slack when you when you've spread the 
uh, the generation uh, around. So I think there's there's a some some benefit there. Uh, there's also uh, benefits uh, from kind of shaving off the demand from uh, the the central uh, power stations here in in Columbia. Uh, we've got um, you know, a, a coal-fired power plant uh, on the the Watery River uh, in in Lower Richland County, you know, the, mm-hmm. the town of uh, Eastover. Down river uh, from me. Plant, <laughs> yeah, that coal plant, for example, uh, is uh, you know, it's a, it's an old old style sort of centralized plant, and if it's ninety five uh, degrees on a July afternoon, plants like that need to operate just super super hard, just running, you know, lots of coal into the boiler, burning lots of coal, everything's, everything's running wide, wide open. Uh, so that's, could stress uh, the, the grid or puts more electricity out, out on the grid. Uh, rooftop solar uh, helps to reduce, reduce that demand. Mm-hmm. So I have solar panels, uh, we've got um, less electricity kind of needing to come from uh, from the grid and, and centralized power stations like that, uh, mm-hmm. and they can come from the roof. Uh, so that's that's one of the the, the benefits um, that, that helps alleviate some of that stress on the grid. Well, that's interesting. It's it's uh it's good to hear that we don't have the infrastructure issues yet that the UK is experiencing because I think that's it's pretty wild to think that they went all in on solar and a place that's not very sunny, but, um, but they, they basically stressed out the grid in the process and and now they're trying to figure out what to do and they put it on the back burner. Um, But uh, you also, we want to talk about offshore drilling in South Carolina. Um, This was certainly big in the news when Trump came into office, because my understanding is that he opened up waters to offshore drilling that, previously had not been opened to that. Um, so tell us about the offshore drilling in South Carolina. Does it exist already? I think the public was pretty against it, at least in news channels, it seemed to have quite a bad backlash. So tell us about offshore drilling in South Carolina, what you're doing, what the Conservation League is doing. Yeah, offshore drilling has been such a, a, a big uh, issue in the last, the last five years or so. Um, so to, to kind of go back to 2013, 2014, uh, President Obama uh, and his administration issued uh, kind of a proposed uh, opening of the South Atlantic to some some offshore drilling, uh, and that's when a lot of the groundswell in South Carolina, really inspiring grassroots action, started with local governments, local uh, city councils, county governments. Uh, starting up uh, and saying, "Hey, we're we're not we're not cool with this," uh, and that local opposition, those local resolutions passed by municipalities, uh, basically said to the Obama administration, oh, "We've got to back off of this." So they took uh, the South uh, Atlantic, the Atlantic Ocean, kind of out of uh, the federal government's drilling plans. And to back up just a second, uh, the reason it's uh, it's really a federal government question: these offshore drilling. Uh, rigs in in the Gulf uh, and really anywhere would happen in federal waters. So the government leases uh, those waters to, to oil and gas companies. So that's why the the, the, the federal government's really in, involved in this uh, at all. Uh, so that was the Obama administration's kind of ultimate ultimate decision, taking the South Atlantic out of drilling plans. Uh, and then uh, in 2017, 
during um, Trump's first few months in office. I think in, in May, he issued an executive order uh, that reopened that leasing process, uh, the proposal uh, to open up the South Atlantic. Uh, and in, I believe, January 2018, he took the next step, uh, kind of a more formal proposal uh, that started a public comment period. You know, we had a big rally uh, at the State House in February 2018 that uh, brought just a bipartisan group of legislators together to say, hey, we, uh, we oppose uh, offshore drilling. Um, and, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen, uh, we, we haven't seen a final rule from the Trump administration allowing, uh, offshore drilling. Uh, I, I think part of that is, uh, from opposition from people like governor Henry McMaster, uh, here in South Carolina, uh, that he's, he's opposed and he's made that opposition you know, very, very clear. Uh, so right now we, we don't, uh, have any any offshore drilling uh, off the coast of South Carolina, uh, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have any uh, off uh, the, the East Coast at all, uh, and that that's something I think we're we're proud of. But we've got to stay vigilant. It's bad for our uh, marine environments. It's bad for you know, fisheries uh, that so many uh, people depend on for their their livelihoods. It's bad. Uh, for, for tourism, people want to go to the beach in the summer. Uh, you don't want to do that if there's oil <laughs> on the beach. Uh, and it's, it, it's, just, it's fundamentally uh, uh, bad for our climate. We need to transition to cleaner energy sources, not you know, doubling down uh, on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, if maybe you know the answer to this because I don't. Uh, where, do, where does state waters end and federal waters begin? I think it's three miles, but I'm completely okay. I'm completely blanking on that. I, it's really I close. That's something I should know, but I, I think no. it's three miles. <laughs> it's interesting because, um, yeah, I mean, that's part of the thought of like, well, if South Carolina says no, then it's no. But then you have to think about international and federal waters. And then I was like, well, I don't even know if the state has jurisdiction over a large part of their water because just the logistics of having a state border go out into the water, I'm sure just makes no sense. So um, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. the state does have jurisdiction over what happens in, uh, in that, uh, that zone uh, kind of right along the coast. So onshore uh, is, is something that also falls within state jurisdiction, uh, which is why state Senator Chip Campson uh, and, and many others have pushed uh, for for state policy that would uh, ban kind of that onshore infrastructure needed to support uh, offshore drilling. Uh, that was a, was a bipartisan effort uh, that led to a budget proviso uh, in 2019 that made it into the state budget that said the state can't issue like, air quality or water quality permits uh, on, on the, uh, the coast to support offshore drilling. Um, that did not uh, become, um, but we, there was a bill to do that as well to kind of make it into permanent law. That didn't happen this year. I think the coronavirus uh, and associated break from legislating interrupted uh, that that effort. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's still it's still in the budget as a proviso, so it's still it's still in place, and it sends a strong signal uh, that South Carolina doesn't want offshore drilling. Mm-hmm. What would be some of the what that onshore infrastructure that that would ha- that would be needed to support an offshore drilling endeavor? A, a lot of it uh, is uh, 
the sort of stuff we see on the Gulf Coast in places like uh, Port Vachon, Louisiana, uh, mm-hmm. Port Arthur, Texas. Uh, it can uh, go from just a, a small um, you know, repair uh, uh, facility to a, uh, you know, a refinery, mm-hmm. uh, a, a terminal, uh, the, the sorts of very heavy, heavy industry uh, that's, that's both incompatible with our tourism economy, but it's, it's also incompatible with just healthy communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the places where those locate uh, are often disproportionately, as we've seen in the Gulf in Louisiana and Texas, uh, in, in black and brown communities, those communities are faced uh, with you know, the air pollution, the water pollution, the noise, the risk of explosions uh, from those facilities. Uh, and it's, it's not something that uh, we want on, on the coast of South Carolina. And I don't think we, we want it anywhere in, mm-hmm. in the United States, which is why I think a larger transition uh, to a clean energy economy that's not as reliant uh, on fossil fuels is, I think, part of the, the overall goal. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, we're a state-level organization. We really focus on what we can do at the, at the state house and, and, in local, and in local governments. So in our day-to-day work at Coastal Conservation League, that's, that's where we're focused. But I, I think we support uh, larger efforts uh, to move uh, our economy in a, in a cleaner direction. Mm-hmm. And something you brought up is very poignant for this time right now. Um, you mentioned that uh, people of color are disproportionately um, disadvantaged by the building of, say, dirty plants. Let's just call it dirty plants. Uh, I I mean, I don't know how many people have been near or at an oil refinery. I, um, I lived in Venezuela about 10 years ago and lived near the biggest oil refinery in the world it, oh, wow. in Punto Fijo in, uh, outside of Coro. Um, and it is, it's dirty. And that's, that's all it is. And, and, you know, these communities are disadvantaged because they can be taken advantage of because uh, people with the means would never allow something like that in their backyard. Uh, and they would move away if it, if it showed up in their backyard. Do you want to speak at all about, um, how environmental justice affects racial justice as well? Absolutely. Uh, the Coastal Conservation League uh, firmly believes uh, that uh, racial justice uh, and environmental justice, uh, climate justice, uh, they're, they're interrelated. In many ways, they're, they're inseparable. Uh, we're not going to be able uh, to uh, address uh, things like you know, air pollution, water pollution, uh, without... Uh, addressing uh, larger uh, social problems, systemic racism uh, that lead to those uh, those disproportionate uh, impacts uh, on on communities, uh, especially uh, here in in South Carolina. We see that in places uh, like like Charleston, uh, in the Naki area of Charleston, uh, with heavy industry uh, located just right there. We have a trash incinerator, Montanay located there. Uh, we see that in, in a lot of parts of, uh, of our state. Um, but that said, it, our organization, environmental organizations, conservation organizations, uh, kind of have a history of being uh, predominantly white spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's something uh, that uh, we're, we're working to fix. I think we need to work harder. Uh, and I, I think that's something that uh, a, a lot of our organizations, a lot of the conservation organizations here in South Carolina uh, are making it a point uh, to, to work on, uh, to, to, to do better. Uh, and uh, often we, uh, 
it, it's it, those conversations are are, are, are difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the the current moment uh, we're in is really just crystallizing uh, for so many of us that this needs to be a priority. There's so many things going on kind of in the day to day work of environmental advocacy groups. You know, some new new permit for a uh, resort hotel on a barrier island. Uh, there's a you know, public hearing coming up on something else. You know, there's just there's a lot of incoming. Uh, but I think over the last uh, the last week with the killings uh, of, uh, of George Floyd, Ronna Taylor, Ahmad uh, Arbery in, in Brunswick, Georgia, we, we saw with, with Christian Cooper in um, Central Park, uh, just being, having the police called on him because he didn't want uh, someone to um, have a, an unleashed dog. Like it's it, all of this, these, these unnecessary uh, uh, deaths, I think put into just real um, just perspective for all of us that this is something that we need to focus on uh, and we need to, we need to work on mm-hmm. uh, and we need to, uh, to have concrete actions and, and not just, you know, a week or two of uh, statements and, and emails and supportive Facebook posts. And that's what's important mm-hmm. uh, to send a strong signal. Uh, we've got to follow up with, with action. And mm-hmm. hopefully uh, we'll, we'll be doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I certainly don't know the answer. And, and I agree with what you're saying in terms of conservation organizations that are, it is a white space. And I do wonder how we bring in uh, a more diverse coalition at the same time, if you're talking about economically disadvantaged um, communities, environmental justice might not be the first thing on their mind because they're just focused on survival. And so that's a big that's a big question just to keep asking and, and trying to figure out. And I don't know the answer, but uh, it, it is, it's a very interesting time right now, but conversations are being had. Uh, I feel like COVID-19, it was almost like a reset, like things really shut down for a month and they're starting to come back. And I hope one thing I've been on my own advocacy journey for a year now. And while these conversations are tough, there seems to be a huge groundswell and people being interested in advocacy because we, I mean, you've been in this longer than me. There's people out there who don't want to rock the boat. You know, they just, they hear advocacy and they kind of just say, you know what, I'm fine. I don't, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to, you know, ruffle feathers. I'm cool. And that attitude is dissipating in this moment right now. It doesn't mean it won't go back to that. I hope it doesn't, but um, hopefully we can use this momentum to, to advocate for the world that we're all hoping for. I think that's right. And I think, we have a lot of listening to do, but at the same time, uh, we're, we're hearing calls for people to vote. Uh, and, and that's, that's incredibly important. We're also hearing calls for people to, uh, to, to organize. And even though I'm, I'm not a criminal justice, uh, expert, I don't know which exactly, which policies, uh, uh, at the state and local level, uh, with, Police departments and local governments to to push on. Uh, I think that's something we're 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 learning about, uh, and you know, we're happy to um, to, to to help with you know, our, our resources and our and our time. Hopefully, um, over the the next few weeks, some of that that organizing strategy um, helps to uh, helps to um, to make some real changes. You know, or, organizing is. Is, is, is hard work. 
uh, the, the work we described earlier uh, about uh, the fight against offshore drilling uh, mm -hmm. and having um, oil and gas companies um, potentially building uh, dirty infrastructure, more dirty infrastructure on our coast. Uh, I think that's uh, that, that taught me a lesson just about the, the, the difficulties of that kind of organizing. We, we had uh, grassroots groups you know, um, popping up across the state uh, and talking to local governments and trying to stay, you know, stay coordinated and stay, uh, stay uh, organized as a coalition. Uh, it was, it's occasionally, it's, it's difficult, but it's usually, uh, it's comes down to relationships. You're talking to people, listening to people, um, finding out you know, what, what the levers are and how to push on them. Um, I think it taught me a lot about just the, uh, the, the focus, uh, that's, that's needed to make a, make a real change. Um, but I, uh, hopefully, uh, when, uh, in a couple of months, we're looking back on this moment. Uh, we're seeing some some real changes, and and not just uh, uh, statements statements of support. Certainly, um, one of the other programs that the Coastal Conservation League is doing that you brought up was to do with localizing food. I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about that initiative? Uh, sure. Uh, Grow Food Carolina is just a, a fantastic program uh, down in in Charleston. Uh, it's, a, it's a local food hub, started about uh, a decade ago. Uh, one of the reasons uh, we, we, we started that, that effort uh, is because so much of the sprawl uh, in, in, in Charleston along the coast uh, was from the economic pressures of local farmers who no longer had markets uh, for fruits and vegetables uh, being sort of economically pressured to, to sell uh, their, their property for, for development. Mm -hmm. And I think this goes back to the, the conversation we were, we were just having, uh, that you know, land conservation uh, and, and economic justice go, go hand in hand. Uh, sometimes the uh, black farmers on, say, John's Island didn't have a market for, for their crops because a, a sort of a monopoly or large food distribution company was, was coming in. Uh, and when that happened, uh, sometimes they were forced to, uh, to sell, not just because of Economic forces, also legal issues, like with with heirs' property, uh, that that forced uh, forced a sale. Uh, so we realized that if we wanted to act uh, on local uh, land conservation and protecting you know, rural uh, food ways and, and food culture, uh, we needed to to step in. Uh, and the, the the food hub uh, does a couple of things. First, it, it provides you know, direct. Um, guidance and assistance with farmers on kind of what, what the market looks like. Uh, and the second thing they do is they, they connect them uh, physically really to restaurants and, and other customers. Uh, so we have a, a warehouse on Morrison Avenue in, in Charleston. Uh, and uh, that warehouse, we take deliveries from farmers. We uh, uh, hold them um the produce there and refrigerated uh, uh, buildings, and then deliver out to restaurants. So it's a it's a direct connection for small producers that normally wouldn't have access to uh, a large um, distribution channel. Some of the the big food distributors you know have minimums uh, for delivery that are you know, higher than what a small farm can produce, uh, and now they're. Uh, 
grow food is, is delivering to farms, uh, delivering to consumers, you know, all across the state. So it's a, it's a neat effort. Uh, it's, it's not uh, exactly like the advocacy work uh, that we do out of our Columbia office where uh, it's, it's much more hands-on. Uh, and through the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, they've done a, just a fantastic job uh, of quickly pivoting uh, from serving restaurants, which of course, you know, closed for months uh, to serving both uh, the Low Country Food Bank uh, and consumers directly. Uh, so they've, they've done a nice job taking um, you know, private capital sort of uh, philanthropy dollars, uh, converting that you know, quickly and putting uh, money in the hands of farmers and food uh, in, in the hands of, of families in the low country that need it. That's awesome. I think our, our food system is, an, is another thing that has broken down during COVID-19. And it's uh, the smaller distribution networks like the one you guys have created were able to pivot away from restaurants to direct to consumer, whereas these larger ones were not. And as our grocery shelves get, you know, bearer and bearer, um, we see the uptick in the demand for farmers markets and CSAs. And I've spoken to a few farmers that are have huge waiting lists now for their CSA. And our local farmers market has gone from once a week to twice a week. So it's very encouraging. And it also helps with our food desert problem, which is a very big problem around here. Um, just, you know, miles and miles without any access to fresh food at all. So, you know. Yeah, it's... It- Analogous to uh, our discussion on uh, on solar energy and distributed energy, uh, often uh, distributed systems uh, are, are more resilient um, with supply chains, with uh, electricity distribution, with food distribution. If we're building a system for maximum profit and maximum efficiency, we're sacrificing some resiliency. So I think with with solar, with food distribution, uh, or we're adding uh, uh, resilience to to the economy and and to our uh, our communities. Um, and speaking of, you, you mentioned uh, food deserts. Um, you know, Grow Food uh, does some retail sales, but there are other groups uh, in Charleston, uh, like Fresh Future Farm, uh, that are are working kind of directly uh, in those those um, those communities uh, on on the neck in Charleston, uh, kind of. Um, in sort of southern North Charleston, northern uh, northern Charleston, uh, that uh, that are in food deserts. So folks should definitely check out you know, Fresh Future Farm uh, on on Instagram and Facebook. I think they're they're doing they're doing great work, um, and we're I'm happy to uh, to support them in a in a very small in a, in a small way. It's uh, one one thing I think we can do is uh, just directly donate uh, to these grassroots organizations like Fresh Future Farm. Uh, that are, are doing just fantastic work uh, that don't uh, have the, uh, the, the broad um, uh, foundation and, and philanthropic support uh, that organizations like mine have. So I think mm-hmm. we're, we're, we want to draw attention to, to those groups uh, and, and uh, encourage folks to directly support them because I think they're, they're doing wonderful work. Folks like Fresh Future Farm as well as you know, like people like the Penn Center uh, down in, in Beaufort County uh, that are, are doing so much to preserve kind of the, uh, the, the civil rights legacy in Beaufort County. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll definitely link all those up in the show notes. That's something oh, awesome. I've been trying to do during this uh, 
these times with all the protests and riots going on is trying to find those um, people of color and black people who are who are doing this work and, and trying to support them directly. There's some amazing things going out there and unfortunately we haven't heard about them and that's part of the problem, right? So we can do our part to, to learn and listen and, and do more. Um, what else can we do as individuals to support your efforts at the Coastal Carolina Conf Conservation League and just to be better stewards, uh, stewards of the environment that we live in? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, so there's a lot of talk about individual action versus uh, versus policy action, and and I think we need both. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when you uh, you know compost your uh, your food scraps, uh, when you you drive less, when you turn the thermostat up a little bit, when you change your light bulbs, you know, in the grand scheme of things, those individual actions may not uh, add up. Uh, to, to, to much of it, just one person. Uh, but if lots of folks do it, uh, like we saw in March when everyone stopped driving, you know, for yeah. a few weeks, the, the air was, uh, was cleaner. That's an example of just lots of individual actions of not driving to work, of um, power plants uh, lowering their output. Uh, that's an example to me that individual action makes, makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's absolutely not enough. Uh, like with so much uh, of, uh, of the policy issue, policy debates we're talking about, uh, you need to know not just who you're going to vote for for president uh, or uh, even for you know, U.S. US Senate or U.S. House, but your, your state level of, uh, officials, your state representative, state senator, kind of knowing who those people are, uh, I think is incredibly important. Um, and not just uh, when you need something. You know, if you you're, you see that your, your state senator, your state representative, you follow them on Facebook. And if you see if they're hosting a, a Zoom or when we get back to in-person events, if they're having them, you know, a, uh, if they're having a meetup at a, at a brewery or something in your, your neighborhood, go just say, hey, and say, uh, hi, I'm a, I'm a constituent. These are the things that I'm interested in. Um, and legislators usually, uh, if they're good, will we'll want to hear from their constituents and they'll let you know kind of the best way to, to contact them. Uh, they'll give you their, you know, their, their email address or say, uh, tag me on Twitter or something. Mm -hmm. um, and, and build that relationship, I think, before you, you need something is, is one thing you can do, especially with state level folks. Uh, uh, and I think it's true for city uh, and, and county council representatives as well. Um, they are in your communities. You're going to see them, you know, at the grocery store. You'll, uh, you'll, you'll see them uh, at neighborhood association meetings. So I think getting to know those folks before you need something, before uh, you know, there's a bill that you'd like them to vote uh, a certain way on, uh, I think that's what, what we always encourage people to do. First, absolutely just get to know them. Because um, so much of what uh, what we do uh, in, in the environmental uh, advocacy space is at the local and, and state level. So that's, that's kind of the, the biggest thing for me uh, is individual actions are, are important, um, you know, composting and um, trying to you know, buy a fuel efficient car when it comes time to, to get a new car. Uh, but, but also uh, join the, join the, join the fight, uh, work it, uh, in within our democracy to find uh, ways that you can um, you can advocate with your your local your state and and of course your your federal elected officials. Mm -hmm.
That's great advice. I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, um, I think the the whole idea of climate change can be overwhelming. It either spurs people to action or it shuts them down. I feel like I've been on both sides. Um, I think the individual doing an individual action can be empowering, but you're right that there needs to be larger change, policy change, systematic change, and that comes with, with engaging in our democracy. And I think, um, well, I can only speak for myself, but getting getting a bit complacent and lazy when it comes to our democracy. And so it does take educating yourself. You know, I'm looking at my sample ballots now and I'm educate like educating myself, like who are these guys? I don't know who they are. Right. And before, and I think a lot of people do this, they just go and, and either vote party or vote for the name that they recognize. And as someone who's in digital marketing, I could make you recognize a name more than others just by pumping a whole bunch of money at some ads um, that just have the name on it. And that would be brand recognition right there. But um, it's, it's a good call to action for us to do our part individually, but then um, look out for, you know, use our democracy the best we can. How do you want, how would you like people to connect with you and the Coastal Conservation League? Uh, yeah, so personally, I, I'm on, on Twitter uh, at Alan M. Hancock, and uh, the Coastal Conservation League is, is on Twitter at SCCCL, so South Carolina Coastal Conservation League. And folks can also get on our email list. Uh, we, we only send good emails, uh, uh-huh. I, I promise. Uh, uh, and we're at coastalconservationleague.org. So when the legislature is in session, we'll let you know if there's a, a vote to weigh in on. Uh, and we'll, we'll also give you, uh, give you some updates on kind of what's happening uh, in, in D.C. So, you know, we talked about local and state level work, but sometimes uh, a big vote's happening in D.C. And we've got some, some good conservation leaders uh, in, in our delegation. So finding out what, what they're doing and and supporting them is something that we, we try to do as well uh, in terms of supporting uh, you know, good bills that they're, uh, they're proposing. So that's, that's how, to, how to connect with me uh, and, and the Coastal Conservation League. All right. Well, Alan, I really appreciate your time with us. It's been a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, the work that you're doing at Coastal Conservation League, it sounds tremendous. And I look forward to following you and the league and keeping up with what you're doing and, and doing what I can to, um, to help the cause. So thank you. Awesome. Uh, thank you, uh, Fiona. I really appreciate the, the time and the, the, the chance to talk about these issues. Yeah. Well, have a great rest of your afternoon and a, a fantastic weekend. <laughs> thank you. You too. Okay. Bye. How was that for you? I really enjoyed learning more about the great work that the Coastal Conservation League is doing and getting a better understanding of energy generation in my state. Alan urges us to get more involved in our democracy to create relationships with our elected leaders and voice our hopes and concerns. I think that's great advice for everyone, no matter where you live. If you enjoyed this content, please be sure to share it with your friends, take a screenshot and add it to your stories, follow us on Facebook and share our posts, and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can see our smiling faces. Be sure to tag us in your posts. Even better, if you'd like to support the Eco Interviews project of sharing stories of people making positive changes for the planet and humanity, donate on Patreon. You can find the link by going to www.eco-interviews and clicking on the podcast in the main menu.